I want to just get right into the word today with you. I'm so excited to preach this message to you. As I said earlier, we've just come through 21 days of breakthrough. I thought last Sunday was going to be the finale of that message series, but God just put so much on my heart last week, I had to just come back this week and revisit it again. So this is 21 and a half days of breakthrough today. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to the Gospel of Matthew 26. Last week, I began uh, by talking about the greatest breakthrough that will ever happen in human history and is still yet to happen. I'm talking about the breakthrough of Jesus' second coming. How many of you know Jesus is coming again? Amen. He's coming again. And last week, we, we looked at that a little bit, but I'm telling you, as I look at what's happening in our world right now, as I, as I look at what's happening in the news and in the headlines, and when I do that in light of what the Bible says, I want to tell you, I am as convinced now as I've ever been, Jesus is about to break through. He's about to break through. Last week, I shared with you that there are 1,817 predictions in the Word of God by one scholar's count, predictions of future events in the Bible. And what's amazing about that is that about half of those have already been fulfilled. Half of the 1,800 prophecies about things to come have already come. So that ought to encourage us to, to believe and lean in with expectations about the things that haven't come yet. That means that at least a quarter of the Bible, if not a third of Scripture, is predictive in nature. That's pretty astounding. Now, now most of you know today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that Jesus rode on a donkey's colt into Jerusalem while the people waved the palm branches and sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus knew coming in on that Sunday that he was about to go to the cross. Can I just remind you that the cross was not a surprise to Jesus? He wasn't shocked when they arrested him. He wasn't shocked when they, when they rendered him guilty in their uh, lynch trial. He was not at all surprised because he had told his disciples many times that it's going to happen. Now, if you're one of the apostles and you've heard Jesus say multiple times that he's going to the cross, that he's going to die, and it's going to happen really soon, how many of you think you might lean in really attentively to what Jesus says in those last few days you have together? I mean, if you, if you had a loved one and you knew that they were, their situation was terminal, and this is your last chance to go and visit them and to spend time with them. And, and you buy your ticket and you go and you visit them. How many of you think you're going to treasure those words more than any other? So look at what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So he said, you know, not only is Passover two days away, but you know the Son of Man is about to be handed over to be crucified. So it says, that's the context. When he had finished saying all these things, he reminded him. So what things had he finished saying? Well, in Matthew chapter 24 and in Matthew 25, Jesus gives the most exhaustive teaching about the second coming of the Lord that we have in Scripture. He speaks at length about this reality, knowing that his days were numbered. The disciples, knowing we've only got a few moments to, to glean wisdom from Jesus. He didn't talk to them about how to preach great sermons. He didn't recap the message on how to pray. He didn't talk to them about evangelism strategies or compassion for the helpless and the hurting. He told them, I'm coming again. 
If there's anything that's going to be a catalyzing force in the life of the church, Jesus said, it's this, I'm coming again. When the Apostle Paul was getting near the end of his own life, he wrote half the books in the New Testament. And when he's getting to the end of his life and he knows he's about, he's about to, to die, as a prisoner, he writes the letter we call 2 Timothy. And he says these words in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. How many of you know the good fight's the one you win? He said, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At the end of his life, Paul was saying, this is what I'm hopeful for. This is what I'm looking forward to. This is my expectation. There's going to be a crown of righteous for everyone who's longing for the appearing of Jesus. See, there's two types of Christians in the world. There's hiders and there's seekers. It's always been that way. There are those that they know God. They know about God's word. They know what God's word says, and they might even believe that Jesus is coming again, that they're going to see God, but they also are very well aware of the way they're living their life. They're aware of the fact that they're not living in anticipation of his coming, and so they hide. Maybe not physically, the way Adam did when he started living in sin, but we've all done what he's done. And people start hiding, and they're living their life instead of saying, I'm longing for your appearing. They're living their life saying, how much can I get away with before he comes back? What can I do that he won't see, that he won't judge me for? There's hiders, but then there's seekers. There's those people that that, want to live their life in light of the reality that God sees and knows all. That's what it means to fear the Lord. They're living their life in anticipation. They're longing, as Paul said. And he said, for those that are longing for the appearing of the Lord, there is a crown of righteousness that is laid up for them. I just wonder this morning if I'm preaching to a room full of hiders or seekers. You know, I used to play hide and seek with my daughters when they were a lot younger. And I was a good hider. The problem is they were not good seekers. In fact, they were forgetful seekers. So I would go and find the best hiding place in the house, and they would look for me in the toy room, and then game over. They got distracted, and they started playing with their toys. 45 minutes later, I'm still sitting in my closet. Are there any seekers here today? I don't want to sit up here by myself in the closet, all right? Let me give you full disclosure, because I'm going to say some things today that might be a little bit contradictory to some of your theology, and that's okay. I want you to know there are many interpretations about the end times. There's many views about the, the, the order of the events of the end times. And I just want you to know, we're going to get in the weeds a little bit today. I'm going to, I'm going to say some things, that, uh, but I want you to know this. I need you to understand the purpose of end time prophecy. There is a purpose for all of it being in the book. And the purpose, if I can say it in one word, is urgency. Urgency. If you miss everything else today, hear this. Christians throughout history have sacrificed their safety, their comfort, their convenience, their finances, even their lives at times for one reason, urgency, the expectation that Jesus is about to break through. The church was compelled by this one thought, Jesus is about to break through. 
And so if, if your belief about the end times don't leave you with a sense of urgency about the coming of the Lord, I'm telling you, you've missed the whole point. Now, personally, I have a lot of grace for different biblical interpretations of, of end time events, just as well as I have grace for different views on the, the beginning of time. At, at both bookends of the human experience, we can differ in some of our views. For example, I, I grew up all my life, I was taught in six literal days of creation. That on the first day, God created the heavens and the earth. There was evening, there was morning, the first day, and it was good. And then on the second day, and, and, and just move right through that, seven literal days. And if you follow the literal path, then, then the world is pretty young. It's about a 6,000-year-old story that we have here from the time that God said, let there be light until this moment. But can I be honest with you? I, I know some really intelligent scholars and scientists who believe in an old earth. I mean, spirit-filled, Pentecostal men and women of God who would take you to the Hebrew text and say, you can translate that as poetic literature, and it's not six literal days, and it does no damage to Scripture. Now, can I just tell you my view about your view? I don't care. <laughs> so long as you get the point. See, the, the point and the purpose, because honestly, you weren't there. I wasn't there. All we have is what the Holy Spirit gave to Moses, and he wasn't there. But we have this, and this is the point. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Is that your take on creation, that before the beginning was, God said, I am? It, it all began with him. It all came from him. It's all for him. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Now, if your view of creation is anything less than the sovereign creation of an all-powerful, almighty, eternal God, you missed the point. And that's how I feel about the end times. There's a breakthrough that's coming in the clouds. The Bible speaks of a day that Jesus will come again. Christ will return. There's an urgency. There's an expectation that comes out of God's word when it comes to that. And so today, I, I want to look at a few of the scriptures with you that communicate to us that we should live with urgency in our lives. Hold your place there in Matthew's gospel and go with me to the Old Testament minor prophet of Joel. Joel chapter 3. Some of you need to reset because you're so troubled by the fact that I gave room for an old earth. You're already bothered. I felt the air suck out of the room. Some of you were like, <gasps> get over yourself. Are you in Joel? Let's go. Let's go. All right. Don't miss the point today. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather nations, all nations, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance. My people, Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and they divided up my land. Now, you're going to have to put your thinking cap on today. But let me tell you, there's two things that happen right here in Joel chapter 3, the first two verses. Number one, it says the Jews are going to return to Jerusalem from all over the world. They've been scattered all over the world. They're going to come back together. The second thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a battle in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat means Jehovah has judged. That's an actual place. The Valley of Jehoshaphat sits at the base of the Mount of Olives. 
It's the place where Jesus is going to return. The word of God says in Zechariah 14, he will step down on the Mount of Olives. That's where the battle of Armageddon is going to happen, in that valley. And so this text tells us two things are going to happen in that time, in those days, and at that time. Jews will return to Jerusalem from all over the world, and the battle of Armageddon is going to happen. Did you know Israel is the only nation in human history to have been dispossessed twice and then to come back and be a sovereign nation? It doesn't happen. When an empire ends, when a nation ends, it's gone. But twice it's happened to Israel. The first time was in 500 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, many of you know the story of Daniel. He was one of the exiles. They were taken into Babylonian captivity, no longer a sovereign nation. But then the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonian Empire, and they had a different view. They led differently, different governmental structure. They didn't really care who you worshipped or where you lived so long as the money came to them. And so the Persian Empire let the Jews go back. And you read those stories in Nehemiah and Ezra. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. They became a nation again. But then there was a second time, a second time that Israel was dispossessed as a nation, and that was in A.D. 70. And Jesus actually prophesied about that time. Look with me back in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, verse 1 says this, Jesus left the temple, and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, Luke 21 gives us a little more insight into this, but what was happening is the disciples were just astounded at the architecture, at the size and scope and beauty of the temple. And it really was amazing. In fact, archaeologists have studied it, and even to this day, when they look at some of the stones that have been quarried out of the Western Wall, they cannot comprehend how this could possibly have been constructed without modern machinery. The average stone in the temple was two to five tons. The, the largest stone, maybe the largest building stone in antiquity, was used there at the temple. It weighed 570 tons. That's 1,140,000 pounds. One solid stone. Imagine moving that without any machinery. And so they're looking at that and they're going, this is, this is amazing. I mean, Jesus, isn't this amazing? Look at this temple. And this is, again, right before Jesus' crucifixion. And he responds to them in verse 2. And he says, do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, come on. If you're there and you're hearing him say that, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like one of those things that we would just kind of try to do some exegetical acrobats to get around. Like, that can't be true. I think what he meant is metaphorically things are... No. Jesus said, not one stone will be left unturned. And then within 40 years, the Roman general Titus attacked Jerusalem. And once they broke past the outer walls, the temple, which was in the middle, also had walls around it. And it became the stronghold. It became the final line of defense. And inside the temple was the holy place where they would worship and honor God. But now they were having to use that as, as a sort of a bank vault because they were trying to protect their riches. And so all the gold and all the silver was piled into the temple as they're fighting off the Roman Empire. And, and darts, of, fiery darts are being launched over the walls. And all of a sudden, the temple is consumed in flames. Rome wins the battle. 
And the fire burned so hot that all the gold and the silver, it began to, it began to melt down through the cracks. See, the temple stones were so big, there was, there was no cement to, to hold them together. They were just held together, dry stacked, weight upon weight. And all the gold and silver began to move down through the cracks. So after Rome took over Jerusalem, the soldiers, one by one, they moved every stone to try and retrieve the treasure, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24 that not one stone would be left unturned. But God wasn't surprised. God wasn't surprised that once again, Israel has been dispossessed. God wasn't wringing his hands going, oh no, how, how is my plan gonna come to be? Look at this verse with me in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 and 12, it says this, in that day, that's a phrase we see in the word of God talking about the coming of the Lord. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Everybody say a second time. To reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. Again, 700 years before this happens in AD 70, Isaiah says a second time. God's going to reclaim his surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylon, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth a second time. So when, when does that happen? When do they come back a second time? They came back once under the Persian Empire, then they were dispossessed in AD 70. You know when they came back a second time? May 14th, 1948. You say, wow, that's really specific. May 14th, at midnight, 1948, Israel declared themselves a sovereign state. On that same day, President Harry Truman and the United States recognized Israel as a nation again, and other nations of the world followed suit. How does that happen? How do you make a state, a nation, in, in one day? Listen to this prophecy from Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 8. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who's ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. That scripture was fulfilled on May 14th, 1948. And Joel said, in those days, and at that time, two things are gonna happen. Israel's gonna return from all over the world, and the battle of Armageddon is gonna come. Well, the battle of Armageddon is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So, so what Joel is saying is, it's not gonna be a long time. Like one generation, in fact, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 24, Jesus said this in verse 32. He said, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. How many of you can see the signs of summer already? Like we're starting to see buds on the trees. Jesus says, you know when that happens, summer's almost here. Thank God, no more snow. Like, yeah, it's almost, it's almost here. I can feel it. He says, learn a lesson from that. Even so, verse 33 says, when you see all these things, talking about the things he prophesied about the second coming, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, it is right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. You know what Jesus said in that moment? 
He said one generation is going to see the beginning of the end times and the end of the end times. One generation is not going to pass. They're going to see the beginning of the end times and the end of the end times. And I know, so I've been hearing about the coming of the Lord my whole life. And some of you, you're old enough to be my grandparents, and you heard about the coming of the Lord your whole life. And so we can keep, we can get pulled into this place of lethargy where we just go, ah, I'm sure one of these days he's coming. But listen, we are the only generation to have these signs being fulfilled while, nation of, while the nation of Israel is sovereign. Think about that. We're the only ones. They've come back, as Isaiah said, for the second time in 1948. So how long is a generation? If, if the end is going to begin and end with one generation, how long is that? Psalm 90 in verse 10 says this, Our days, they may come to 70 years or 80 if we have strength that endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and they fly, we fly away. Now, I don't know that, that that's the way to interpret a generation, but I, I'm going to just assume that the Bible's got a better estimation than I do. So if a generation is 80 years at best with your strength, Next year is Israel's 75th anniversary as a nation. I'm telling you today, Jesus is about to break through. That, that, that ought to cause a sense of urgency in the way that we live our life, in the way that we prioritize our days. 2,600 years before, Ezekiel wrote about what's happening in our world right now. He talked about what's happening on the news right now, in Ezekiel chapter 38, he told Ezekiel to prophesy to Gog and Magog. Now, Gog is a man. Magog is a land. The word Gog means czar or president or leader, dictator, prince. Magog is a territory. The territory specifically is north of the Black Sea and north of the Caspian Sea. You can look it up on an old map. That's Russia. And here's what he says through Ezekiel. Verse 14, therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, that's the leader of Russia, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north. You and many nations with you, and all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty Army. It's interesting when you look at a map, you know, in the Bible, all directions are giving in relation to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the center of God's heart. He's the focus of, of things to come. If you look on your map from Jerusalem and go straight north, the highest city you meet, significant city you meet before you run into the Arctic Ocean is Moscow. So here, 2,600 years ago, God says through Ezekiel, you'll come from your place in the far north. You and all your nations, all your hordes, you're going to come against my people, Israel. What's going to happen in that war? We don't have to read the news to find out. God says what's going to happen on that day. In Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 1, he says, Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, Gog. I'm not trying to tell you today that Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist. I don't know who the Antichrist is. I don't care who the Antichrist is. I'm planning on going in the rapture before the Antichrist gets to take his place of authority. 
But I can tell you what God thinks of Vladimir Putin. He said, I'm against you. I'm against those who are against Israel. He said, I'll turn you around and I'll drag you along. I'll bring you from the far north and I'll send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I'll strike your bow from your left hand and I'll make the arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel, you will fall. You and all your troops and the nations with you. I'll give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I'll send fire on Magog, that's Russia, and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. Church, here's what you need to know about the end times. The end times are God's times. He said, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I will will come with my fury. I will come with fire. I am in control. Listen, all of this, what it should do is it should tell you God is in control. God is the final authority. He's the alpha, the omega. He has the first word and the last word. And the bottom line today is this. Here's what you need to know, that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled in our lifetime. It is being fulfilled. Israel has become a nation for the second time, as the word says it must. There are alliances being formed against Israel, and they will continue to be formed against Israel until that last battle. The Bible, as I said last weekend, is being preached in every language. It will be in print in every language by 2033. It will be proclaimed sooner than that. And like the birth pains that indicate it's almost time for a woman to deliver, Jesus said, these things that we're seeing now are the beginning of birth pains. That's what this is. The world is contracting right now. I want to ask the worship team to come. And last week I I shared with you three ways that you can accelerate the Lord's coming. That you actually have a part. Peter said this. He said, speed the Lord's coming. You can do it by living a life of purity. You can do it through your prayers, and you can do it through your proclamation of the gospel. These are the things we should be about. Living holy and pure lives, proclaiming the gospel, and being a people that intercede like watchmen on the walls. But Today, I want to tell you quickly, as we get ready to close, three things that you can do to prepare for Jesus' breakthrough. Three things you can do. Number one, don't be alarmed. <laughs> Some of you are like, don't be alarmed. You just scared the life out of me. We, just, like, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. That's exactly what Jesus said when he told the disciples about this moment. In Matthew 24, verse 6, he said, you'll hear about wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but still the end is to come. You don't have to worry about the wrath of God if you're ready for the rapture of the church. If you're ready to meet Jesus, if you're a seeker and not a hider, you don't have to worry. Hear this today. And I know there's different views on this, and that's fine, so long as you're living a life of urgency. But I'll tell you my conviction. I believe the next event on God's end times calendar is the rapture of the church. I believe Jesus is coming again to catch his bride away, as it declares in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet them in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord. I believe Jesus is coming for his bride. I believe according to 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will not be revealed until the one who holds him back is removed, and the one who's holding him back is the church, 
the remnant people of God, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. This world is going to grow dark and his platform is going to go bright when the church is gone. I believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation begins. Jesus said, that day will be like it was in the days of Noah. What was it like in the days of Noah? Jesus said, that day will be like it was in the days of Lot. Well, what was it like in the days of Lot? In both of those situations, there were men of God who were preaching judgment to come. They were giving warnings of the wrath of God, and yet the people continued to rebel. They rejected the gospel. They lived in sin. They, they turned their nose at God, and then judgment came. In Noah's day, the earth was flooded and destroyed. In Lot's day, fire and brimstone poured down and destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in both of those cases, before the judgment of God came, deliverance for the righteous came. God made an ark of safety for Noah and his family. God delivered Lot and his family out of Sodom before the wrath of God was poured out. I believe that it's going to be the same for you and me. That's, that's why I, I stand on the scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul said, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means I don't, I don't have the privilege of sitting back and resting on my laurels and going, well, you know, once, once the, the Ten Nation Coalition comes together and once people start forming an attack against Israel and, and, and once the Antichrist is revealed, then I'll get ready to meet the Lord. No, 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 I got to live ready right now. I don't have to be afraid of any of that stuff. Because this same Jesus who ascended will come again in like manner. He'll come physically, he'll come visibly, he'll come literally, and he'll come to the same spot, the Mount of Olives. The second thing you need to know, don't, don't be alarmed. Number two, make sure you're ready to meet Jesus. Make sure you're ready to meet him. If he could come at any moment, Thessalonians says when he comes, he'll come like a thief in the night. He'll come quickly. By many, it'll be unexpected. Be ready to meet him. And if, if you feel like, man, I got I to gotta make sure I'm ready. If you have any heart, then your next thought ought to be, a, who else do I know that needs to be ready? That's why, that's why this morning we put these invitations on your seat again. To, to say, please think about somebody that you love, that you know needs to know Jesus. Take these cards. There's, we bought like a thousand of them. There's like 700 still out there. Please ask the Holy Spirit to convict your heart about the coming of the Lord and to consider who do I know that isn't ready? Who can I pray for this week? Who can I call and reach out and beg them, please come with me? Please come to church. It's Easter. I mean, everybody goes to church on Easter, right? Please just come. I mean, I know we've had these conversations about faith and you don't agree with me and we, we've argued, but listen, I, I, that's okay. I can't make you do anything, but I just want to make sure you understand what I believe. And next Sunday, my pastor is going to be telling the story that is the story of why I give my life to Would you just, would you come and just hear that story? Please. How many of you know we can't save anyone? 
But God, help us to be so compelled by the urgency of Christ's coming that we don't fail to tell them. Number two, be ready. Number three, stay busy. Stay busy. You say, what, what, why, why do I say that? Because believing that Jesus is coming soon is no excuse for poor stewardship. I know, lo- I know lots of pastors that are my grandparents' age that served the Lord their whole ministries and, and they died or they retired well, and died with nothing. They-, they didn't prepare. They didn't prepare for retirement because they were so convinced Jesus is coming soon. And why wouldn't they be? I mean, they were young men preaching the gospel when Israel became a nation for the second time. Whew, that's never happened since AD 70. It's happening. They, they saw the Soviet Union. They, they lived through world wars. They were preaching in their older years during the Cold War. They saw what the atomic bomb could do, and it gave revelation to all the scripture says about the mountains being lit up with fire. They were so convinced that Jesus was coming, they didn't prepare for the future. They had so many reasons to believe. Church, we have even more. But stay busy. Jesus said, occupy until I come. In fact, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to tell the people, Jesus is coming soon. And then he had to write 2 Thessalonians. And one of the major themes of 2 Thessalonians was get back to work. Like, they had just become busybodies. They were just all, oh yeah, Jesus is coming. Like, no, get a job. Plan for retirement. Invest in your children and and your children's children. Live like Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but plan like he's not coming back for 100 years. Stay busy. Stay busy. Jesus is about to break through, church. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this room. We're going to just take a moment and pray. If you're here today and you're not ready to meet the Lord, please make a decision right now. Make a decision right now to to give your heart and life to Him, to surrender everything, to say, Jesus, I, I, I don't know when you're coming, but I want to be ready. If you come today, I want to be ready. Would you bow your head with me all over this room? God, I thank you for your presence today. I thank you for your word. So powerful, so incredible. God, thank you for the urgency that the Holy Spirit has infused into the text that we would be among those who are not hiding, but those who are seeking, those like the Apostle Paul who are longing for your appearing so that we can receive the crown of righteousness. Jesus, if there's anyone here today that their heart has been hardened like stone, God, would you break through? Would you break up hardened hearts today? Make those stony hearts hearts of clay. God, make them moldable and shapeable and conform to your will and your purpose. That's you today. Just surrender to him right now. Just tell him, Jesus, I I repent of my sins. I give you my life. From your heart, Jesus, I, I repent of my sins. I'm sorry for sinning against you. God, I give you 
my life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. 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 Are you thankful for God's word today? Amen. Hallelujah. Church, this should be our attitude. I've read the back of the book. We win. We win. And when you get to the last page and the last chapter and the final verses of the word of God, here's what it says. Revelation 20 and verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. Now the spirit is the Holy Spirit. But how many of you know who the bride is? That's the church. And John, after he gets this revelation of all things to come, the things that have happened, the things that are happening, the things that will happen, he says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And then the Bible ends with this word in verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I am coming. Come on, would you call on the Lord with me one more time? Father, today, we don't want to be hiders. We want to be seekers. Lord, we want to fear the Lord, to turn to Him in all of our ways, knowing that you're going to lead and guide our paths. Lord, we want to be a church that lives in expectation in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. We want it to determine the way we spend our days, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our energy, the way that we fearlessly proclaim the gospel and passionately serve the least among us. God, we want the coming of the Lord to be the thrust of the church. So Lord Jesus, we say with the Spirit, come. Come, Lord. Come to hearts and lives in our community, in our family, those that are far from you. Lord, show up the way you showed up this morning. Continue to show up in the lives of everyone, Lord God, that this gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth and the end would come. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. 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 Let's give him glory one more time today. Hallelujah. Amen.